We live in a generation with an appetite for discontent. This is true across political lines, religious lines. Uh, there's just in our generation an appetite for discontent. Some of that may be fueled by social media, but perhaps social media is so constructed because we are discontent and there is an infinite feed loop that takes place there, but the end result of it is that we believers, non-believers, are filled with an appetite for discontent. At the same time, we have a longing for transcendence, a longing for something that is bigger than us, a longing for some kind of meaning that gives a ground for understanding why we're here, what we're doing in this life, a longing for transcendence. And so, with an appetite for discontent and a longing for transcendence, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning for the question, what is our only comfort in life and death? Because if we answer that question rightly, it will replace our discontent with joy, and it will bring us that transcendent that we long for. You know, as we think about life and death, there are three kind of main avenues in which, at least in the United States, we think about these things. One is to just say, there's an afterlife. You know, that is that somehow, yeah, people die and then somehow they live after they die and it's all going to be happy and good for everybody. That's a pretty common American way of looking at it. It's just all going to be good somehow. On the other hand, there are people who claim to be of a more scientific bent that say, when you die, that's it, you're dead, room temperature no such thing as life after death at all. And then there is the Christian view, which is that there is a bodily resurrection, a resurrection of the body that means that bodily we will be with the Lord forever. Notice that there are three different points of view. Now, as to the one that just says, that's it, when you're dead, you're dead, I noted this week that the famed theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger weighed in. And he was asked this question about life after death and the idea of a resurrection, of the bodily resurrection. And, and he was asked by a very popular radio personality, what happens to us when we die? Schwarzenegger's response was, nothing, you're six feet under. Anyone that tells you something else is a liar. He says, we don't know what happens with the soul and all this spiritual stuff that I'm not an expert in. Well, there's one point at which he's correct. But he says, but I know that the body as we see each other now, we will never see each other again like that. 
a flat-out denial of the bodily resurrection. He does, even though he doesn't believe in it, he does leave room for what we'd call an afterlife. Bodily resurrection, no way, according to Arnold. He says, except in some fantasy. When people talk about, I will see them again in heaven, it sounds so good, but the reality is we won't see each other again after we're gone. That's the sad part. I know people feel comfortable with death, but I don't. I'll miss out of everything. To sit here with you here, that will one day be gone, and to have fun, and to go to the gym, you can almost hear his accent, right? And to pump up, (laughs) and to ride my bike on the beach, to travel around, to see interesting things all over the world, that's over. What is our only comfort in life and death, my friends? Let's stand for the reading of Scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read verses 12 through 28. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Please have a seat. Now, some say that there is no resurrection of the dead. These folks at Corinth were not saying that there was no afterlife. Greek philosophy was filled with speculations about the afterlife, and the people at Corinth were no exception. They believed in an afterlife. But what they were saying was that there's no bodily resurrection. 
We do not physically, bodily rise from the dead. You know, Paul in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. They're denying that truth. And so Paul goes into several responses as well as some reasons why this is wrong to say that there is no resurrection of the dead. First, verse 12, if Christ is raised bodily, if Christ is not raised bodily, how can it be said that there's no, excuse me, if Christ is raised bodily, how can it be said that there's no bodily resurrection? If there's no bodily resurrection, Christ isn't bodily raised from the dead. Not even Christ is included in that. If there's no resurrection of the body, no resurrection of the dead. Verse 14, if Christ is not bodily raised from the dead, there's some horrifying results to Christ not being raised from the dead. First, Paul's preaching is in vain. It's just, it's a lost cause. It's empty of meaning. His preaching, which we looked at last week in verses 1 through 11, of what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, that that proclamation, that heralding of that wonderful good news is all in vain, completely empty, without any validity or meaning. Verse 14 Not only is Paul's preaching in vain, Paul says, your faith is in vain. You're believing in what Jesus did at the cross to forgive your sin. That's empty. Has no meaning, no validity. Verse 15, in fact, Paul says, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, we've been running around misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Jesus from the dead which he clearly did not do if the dead aren't raised. This idea of bodily resurrection is an absolute cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. It's absolutely necessary. If Christ isn't bodily raised from the dead, preaching is vain, faith is vain, we're misrepresenting God. Now, in general, if the dead are not raised. Now, Paul's talked first about if Christ isn't raised, some horrific results. Then he goes on to say, let's think about just the resurrection from the dead in general, and there's some horrific results if 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 we deny that. Verse 16, Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Verse 18, Those who have died as believers in Jesus, that's what the phrase fallen asleep in Christ, those people who are part of the number of the church at Corinth who have died with a faith in Jesus Christ to save them from their sin, they have, the word there is perished. It means lost, ruined, passed away, destroyed, eternal death. No hope for them. Verse 19, if believing in Christ is to benefit this life only, we are to be pitied the most of all people. 
If, if this is just somehow principles for us to be able to have our best life now, as one person writes, <laughs> it's just a total pity. You should just pity everybody who believes this message of the gospel. If it's just principles for this life here and now, there's no bodily resurrection from the dead. Merely believing in an afterlife is not enough for the Christian. We must believe in a bodily resurrection, first of Jesus from the dead, and then because He lives, we too will have a bodily resurrection from the dead. So, verses 20 to 24, Christ's resurrection starts some wonderful results into motion. Paul's been arguing in the negative in verses 12 through 19, what happens if there isn't a bodily resurrection of the dead? Now he goes to the positive, right? What did Christ's resurrection do? Verse 20, don't you love how it starts? But in fact, but in fact. You know, there are times where Paul goes to apologetics. He did that in verses 1 to 11. Jesus was seen by 500 people at one time and all the, the apologetics of the resurrection, but now he's preaching. He's just declaring the truth. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Isn't that wonderful? In fact, it's true. It's a fact of history. And now what we have here in the end of verse 20, he uses this phrase, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, first fruits of those who have died in Christ. This word first fruits comes from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 26, and Moses writes when, from God's direction, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and you've taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, the first of the harvest, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall take it to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. That ended up being the temple at Jerusalem. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. This is a description of what life is like here in this world. It's hard. There's sin. There's brokenness, slavery, bondage. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a picture of salvation. And now, behold, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice 
in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Why did I read all that? Because if we understand that what the first fruits were in Deuteronomy and how Israel was to do it, it's a recognition that life is hard, but when we have this first fruit of a harvest, it's a reminder of great things are to come. And there's blessing ahead. And this, I love this idea that there's going to be good. Did you see that? It's just, you will rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you. Well, now go back to 1 Corinthians 15 here. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead is the first fruits for every believer in Jesus who will also one day obtain a bodily resurrection from the dead. It's the first fruits. It's the good that is coming because of the good that has, been, has arrived. The good that is coming because of the good that has already arrived. Christ is our first fruits. Now, Christ's resurrection is the only means of undoing Adam's curse. Did you know that? If Jesus wasn't bodily raised from the dead, the curse couldn't be undone. Look at verse 21. As by a man came death, he's talking about Adam. As a result of Adam's sin, death came to everybody. Physical death, spiritual death, all of separation comes from a man. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ, the God-man, has come, and He has brought about the resurrection of the dead. As if we needed more explanation, He gives it in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. We're all separated from God. All of us are broken and ruined and cannot save ourselves. How many rights, how many things can a dead person do? Answer, nothing. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. In Adam, all die. That's this life, friends. In Adam, all die. It's the best that we can hope for in the end, dead if that's the only part of the Christian message, Arnold Schwarzenegger is absolutely correct. But in Christ, all shall be made alive. Now, it doesn't mean all without exception shall be made alive. There'll be a resurrection of the dead for those who are apart from Christ, but a resurrection to condemnation. Here, in Christ all shall be made alive is saying all who are in Christ shall be made alive. We'll see why that's true in verse 23. God has orchestrated a perfect order to things. Now, there are times where I experientially want to question God's perfect ordering. Things happen that I don't understand in this world. I look at things that happen. I look around here in this room and I see people who have suffered deeply, who have deep losses of loved ones who have died. But I want to tell you on the authority of God's Word, He has orchestrated a perfect, a perfect order to things. In verses 23 and 24, we have a chronology 
for the end of the world. Look at verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. That's the first thing. Christ raised from the dead bodily. Then at his coming, when Jesus Christ comes again, those who belong to Christ. Do you see how verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive, doesn't mean every person without exception. It means everybody in Christ shall be made alive, everyone who belongs to Christ. And then verse 24, then the wonderful but also horrible end comes, the wonderful part. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father. The delivery of the kingdom of of God to God the Father by Jesus Christ. Then comes the end when Jesus takes the kingdom of God and presents it to God the Father. When we were going through the pandemic, did you use delivery services? You know, you called up, you make your grocery order, and somebody comes and lays it on your porch or whatever, and then you look at it and you realize it's all wrong. You know, uh, you didn't get what you asked. You're, you're, you're longing for, man, I wish these people could get it right, and why did they make that exchange? I, I ordered grapes and I get canned beets. You know, what, what is that? You know, listen. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and because He rose from the dead, He is so triumphant over every power of darkness and evil that He will take the kingdom of God and perfectly deliver it to God the Father. A perfect delivery. That's a wonderful end, isn't it? But do you notice that there's a horror to it as well? End of verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, who are these rulers and authorities and powers? Well, if you look at the New Testament, you will see that they are unseen forces in the heavenly realms. There's all kinds of evil beings out there, Satan and his minions, and the horrible end for them is that they are powerfully destroyed by the one who died and rose from the dead. Jesus will reign. And they must be destroyed. Look at verse 25, for He must reign. You see, we see the power of God in the reign of Christ. The rulers and authorities and powers must be destroyed because Jesus must reign. In fact, they were created for His glory to be made known. The destruction of evil things brings glory to Christ. Now, I'm not telling you that I hope to comprehend all of God's purposes in allowing evil. I do not. I do not know God's purposes in allowing evil. Job certainly did not get his questions answered. 
But I will share with you that one purpose for the existence of these evil rulers and powers and authorities is for the glory of Jesus Christ in His triumph over them by His bodily resurrection from the dead. The glory that He obtains by His triumph. It is hard for us to recognize glory except in victory. We can see that in wars where we see the glory of bravery and of unbelievable sacrifice and accomplishment, but only in contrast with the difficulty and the hardship of the opponent in the triumph, in the victory, we recognize the glory. In an athletic competition, we don't see the amazing athleticism of someone or of a team except in their victory, and the more challenging the victory is, the greater glory goes to the victor. The greater the opponent, the greater glory to the victor. And here what we have is not a barely eke out a victory. This is the total domination of the Lord of glory over every force of evil. He completely overwhelms evil. Power of God in the reign of Christ. Now, there's an Old Testament text that Paul offers up to prove it, and it's Psalm 8. You remember we began our service with that, that in general, God made a glory of human beings. You know, you've made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. And it's a description of the King of Israel, crowned Him with glory and honor. But the great fulfillment of this text is God in the flesh, the very God of gods taking on human flesh made lower than the angels and given dominion. The Scripture says, you have put all things under His feet. All things under the feet of Jesus, the God-man. Now, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself will die. This phrase, the last enemy that is being destroyed, a present reality referring to a future event. It's going to happen. We can take it to the bank. Death will die, verse 27, because everything under His feet includes death itself. Look at it, verse 27. For God's put all things in subjection under His feet, quotation from Psalm 8, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. This Lord who is triumphant over all enemies. I love how the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, puts it in verse 2 of that him. It says, crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave, 
who rose victorious in the strife for those He came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, and catch the last line, and who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. That's what's being talked about here. God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now, Paul wants to hasten to add there at the end of verse 27 that the putting of everything under Christ's feet does not mean God the Father, of course, because God the Father is the one who has put all things in subjection under Christ. And in verse 28, the subordination of the Trinity is one of the great mysteries of the universe. Jesus is equally God with God the Father, but the order of the subjection of God the Son to God the Father happens so that God may be all in all. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, that is to Jesus, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, that is God the Father, who puts all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. The point of it is that we will not be worried about the puny, tiny things that we think about when we think about eternity. We will be thinking about God all in all. How does Christ's resurrection authority affect all of life? Well, it means that there is nothing outside of Christ's resurrection authority, and that means that ultimately all will be well. You know, we have such a puny view of God's eternal kingdom, and it's sometimes found in the questions that we ask about the life to come. These are not wrong questions as much as they are reflective of the diminished understanding we have of the white-hot worship of God around His throne. You know, we ask questions like, will my pet be there? Or what will be my relationship to my loved ones? Or will there be ice cream? Or the question that I ask, will there be chocolate chip cookies? But you know, this is why our church focus is so, so important, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. For that is what we will do forever. And it's not just having little tiny wings and strumming a harp. It is glories that we cannot even comprehend right now in the all-in-allness of God and the kingdom of God being presented by Jesus Christ to God the Father. I'm sure you've heard other puny views of Christ's forever kingdom. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how can the reality of the life become uh, the life to come become more real to us. And this week, I want to challenge you fathers with this idea. Take 60 seconds every morning. Look at yourself in the mirror and say out loud, what am I living for? What am I living for? And just take 60 seconds to think about it and it will help settle your mind about the mundane events that are going to happen that day and put them in the right perspective of thinking about the white-hot worship of God in all of life right here and now and the glory that is going to be revealed to us.
Just take a moment to do that. C.S. Lewis remarked it well, and I'll paraphrase him so that it's a little bit more American English. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a vacation at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Catechisms come because they are means by which we can teach children about the faith. The New City Catechism, which recently has come out, has some questions. The very first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer for the youngest children is to say that we are not our own, but belong to God. That we are not our own, but belong to God. So this morning, I'm going to ask you that question, and I want us to say together the response, that we are not our own, but belong to God. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Boys and girls, would you say it? Just the boys and girls here, that we are not our own, but belong to God. What is our only hope in life and death, boys and girls? That we are not our own, but belong to God. We do it again. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Now, 460 years ago, there was a catechism that was constructed at Heidelberg by a 26-year-old and a 28-year-old guy. In that, they did a 52-question catechism, so every Sunday they went through one different question of the catechism through the year. Here's question number one. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Could we say this together, the answer? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This morning, brothers and sisters, we live in an era that is voracious in its appetite for discontent. Find your contentment in these eternal truths, brothers and sisters. Christ is raised and I too will rise. 
We live in a world that is longing for the transcendent, something bigger, something more impactful, something emotional, something that is deeply spiritual, a longing for the transcendent, and how much more transcendence can you get than God the Son presenting to God the Father the kingdom that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Oh, Father, satisfy our discontent with the joy of knowing Christ. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith and hope in Jesus, that they would do that right now. For there is a destruction that is coming. And I don't want anyone here to be part of that eternal destruction. May they trust in Jesus to forgive them of their sin. May they believe in His death and burial and resurrection from the dead so that they too will rise from the dead. Lord, comfort everyone here who feels the weight and the burden of the sin and its curse, the sin of Adam and its curse. Many have lost loved ones, don't know why. Suffering is part and parcel of our existence right now. But glory is coming. And encourage our hearts with this truth that there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will reign. In fact, He must reign and will put all of His enemies under His feet. And He will present the kingdom to you that you, God, may be all in all. Remind us of how powerfully transcendent it is that we will be among the number of billions of billions of people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who witness your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.